All right, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. So give your attention as I read God's word here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there you have it. Now it's interesting because in this passage, Paul cites at least three Old Testament passages, and we're going to look briefly at them as well. But what you have here is a continuation of Paul's argument in Galatians 3. Galatians 1 and 2, he has introduced himself, and he has, in a sense, defended his uh, his message and his ministry to the Galatians. Now he's expounding, in chapters 3 and 4, he's expounding on the... Uh, the doctrine, the central focus of his, of his thesis here, which is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He introduces it at the end of chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. Uh, he introduces that idea that we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's going to uh, expound on that in chapters 3 and 4, and as we've been looking at chapter 3 so far, the first nine verses, he is now looking at how this concept of justification by faith uh, and not by works of the law, how this was uh, always the case. This was always the case throughout the Old Testament, and he points to uh, Abraham. We saw that last week in verses 6 through 9. He looks at the life of Abraham, how Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith in the promises of God. And it was done before he had done any works. It was done before he, had, uh, he, he was made righteous, declared righteous, I should say, before he um, obeyed in circumcision. It was, it was not by works of the law that Abraham was justified. And then he makes the argument, then we too, who are of faith... Verse 9, right? Are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We become then sons of Abraham by our faith. So, you know, we looked at how Abraham was told by God to peer up into the heavens and count the stars if he could. And and he was told that if you can count them, I mean, that's how your offspring will be. And the point that Paul is making here is that that promise, in a sense, was fulfilled because as people come to faith in Christ, they become adopted into Abraham's family, if you will. They become sons of Abraham through faith. So Abraham does have many sons and daughters, just not naturally descended from him, uh, many of them Gentiles, but exhibiting the same faith that Abraham exhibited and thus being brought into his family as well. So he's, he's going to be focusing on this idea of how we are justified by faith, not by works of the law. And now... He's going to look at in these verses this morning, he's going to talk about the difference between the law and faith, how the law puts you under a curse, and how you are blessed through faith in Christ. So that's what we're going to see this morning, that through Christ's 
redemptive work. Believers are delivered from the curse of the law and they are made heirs of the promises made to Abraham. That's essentially the theme of this passage this morning. Uh, Through Christ's redemptive work, believers are delivered from the curse of the law and made heirs of the promises that were made to Abraham himself. So we're going to look at this. It's going to be broken down into three parts. Here you've got uh, verse 10, curse of the law. Verses 11 through 13, the redemption from the curse. And then verse 14, the blessing of faith in Christ. So again, just look at verse 10 as we look at the curse from the law. For all who rely on works, or it may just say, for all who are of works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and here's a quote from uh, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul's point here when he brings this up, what he's mentioning here, is that if you're going to live by the law, guess what? You're going to die by the law. Okay? If you live by the law, you're going to die by the law. The law is given, and if you're going to put yourself under the law, then you have to put yourself under the whole law. right? You cannot put yourself under the law and say, I've kept 57% of it. That's better than half, right? So I should get in. Or I've kept 67% of it. That's two-thirds. Two-thirds, not three-thirds. That's two-thirds. That's two-thirds of the law. That's good, right? Or I kept 90% of it. That's nine-tenths. That's, that's pretty good, right? No, if you put yourself under the law, you will die by the law. Because you are, what you're doing, in a sense, what he's making the argument here is, if you're going to go back to the law... You're, in a sense, rejecting what Christ has given you, and now you're going to put yourself back under a curse. Okay? Because the law says if you don't do everything that is written in the book of the law, you are under the curse. That is the point. The law is an all-or-nothing kind of thing. You, it's, it's, it's not a smorgasbord. It's not, it's not a buffet line where you can pick certain things out of the law that you like, and reject the certain things out of the law that you don't like and say, okay, I'll do these things, I'll forget about those things, and I'm okay. No, if you live by the law, you will die by the law. Now, we've been looking at Galatians and Romans because Paul makes the same argument really in both places. In Romans, it's a little more developed because it's a little later in his life and he is not writing to the Roman church to confront a impending heresy, uh, but in Romans 4.15, he writes there, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, the law, basically the law, is, it, it's, you know, it comes in and says, this is how you shall live, okay? And if you fail to live it, it, it puts you under the wrath of God. Right? We, we're, we started looking at this a couple, three weeks back in Genesis, how, how God gave uh, Adam in the garden, he gave him a command, he gave him a law. Do not eat of this tree. And now we're going to see it tonight when Adam failed to live up to the command of God. Well, when he, uh, when he fails, God puts him under the curse of the law. The curse of the law is your failure to keep the law. 
So if you are, if you've, uh, the law just brings wrath because the law just tells you how far you have fallen short. Right? That, that's really the essence of the law. The law has no power in and of itself to save. The law just tells you this is right, this is wrong, and, and it shows you how far you've fallen short. So it cannot make anyone righteous. And all it does is just show us our sin. Uh, I, may, I may have mentioned this at some point in the past. Uh, there's three uh, aspects of the law. The law is uh, a mirror, the law is a curb, and the law is a guide. Okay? And in this sense, with the way Paul's using it here, he's, he's using it in the sense of a mirror. All, right? the, all the law does is show you your sin. It shows you, here's, here's what God requires of you, and now judge for yourself how far you've, you've uh, uh, gone, right? Ha- have you done this? Have, have you accomplished what God has put out before you? So if you decide you want to leave Christ, that's what he's... And, and the argument Paul's going to make here in Galatians, it's like, look, you are saved by faith alone. You are justified in Christ by faith alone. If you're going to add works of the law, in a sense what you're doing is you're rejecting what Christ has done and you're saying, I'm going to do it myself. So you are, you are rejecting God's offer and you're putting yourself now under the curse of the law. And that was the case in ancient Israel. As Paul here quotes, it's like, look, this, is, this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 27, 26, where he cites this for all who are uh, under the law, right? What does he say there? All who are under the law are cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the law. I already forgot it. Yeah, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the law. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy 27, this is um, the nation of Israel. They are on the banks of the Jordan getting ready to cross into the promised land. And Moses, because of course, because of his own disobedience, is not allowed to go in the promised land. But he is now speaking to the new generation, right? They spent 40 years of wandering so that the old generation that failed to go into the promised land way back in Numbers 13 and 14, that generation's gone. Now he's speaking to a new generation. And, and the reason why the book is called Deuteronomy, it's like second law. He's, he's giving the law again to this new generation, before they enter into the promised land. And, and, and on, in Deuteronomy 27, uh, the whole chapter there, he talks about when you cross over, you're going to go up on Mount Ebal and you're going to pronounce these curses. And, and, and then each time, you know, it, basically it's a law. It's like if you don't do the law, you're cursed. And then the people are supposed to agree with that by saying amen. So if you look at verses 16, 17, you know, all the way through uh, the end of the chapter... Um, make sure I get the right one here. Yeah, all the way through the end of the chapter. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and mother. And all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Cursed be anyone, cursed be anyone, so on and so forth. And after they, they announce the curse, the people shall say amen. So let it be, so let it be, so let it be. And at the end of it, you see, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. In other words, God is saying, okay, you're going to go into the land, you're under a covenant, the covenant says you have to keep my law to stay in the land, and if you do not, you will be cursed. And the people are saying, 
yes, Lord, that's exactly what we will do. We are agreeing to the terms of the covenant. So Paul is saying, if you, if you put yourself under the law, then you better keep it all. You better keep it all. That's the point. The law is all or nothing. There's no partial keeping it. It requires perfect obedience. If you remember in the book of James, James chapter 2, I've got the reference here. You don't need to turn there, but it's verses 9 through 11. And he says, look, if you fail in one point of the law, guess what? You fail in all of the law. It does you, it does you no good to go before God and say, well, you know, I haven't killed anybody. And he's like, yeah, but have you borne false witness? Well, yeah, but I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> Yeah, but did you, you know, did you, you know, did you steal? Yeah, but I honored my father and mother and I didn't kill anybody. It's like, it doesn't matter. You're a lawbreaker. That's the point. You are a lawbreaker. In the history of Israel, of course, you know, I mean, if God were being completely strict in his, uh, uh, administration of the law, how long would Israel have stayed in the land before they were kicked out? <laughs> okay. I mean, probably like a millisecond. <laughs> you know, they walk in, it's like, you know, like the land just spits them right back out again. Now, you know, of course, the law had stipulations where if they, were, if they failed in law, they can make atonement for their failure. And, and by that, then they were allowed to stay in the land. But it, you know, as they began to grow more and more apostate, more and more disobedient, more and more idolatrous, and then eventually uh, as the kings who are sort of put in place as sort of like a representative of the people, as the kings become more and more wicked, eventually God's patience runs out and he eventually kicks them out of the land. So the history of Israel, human experience demonstrates this as well, that all falls short of what God demands. There's no one who keeps the law. Romans 1 through 3. You are all guilty. No one seeks after God. No one desires righteousness. Your, your mouth is an open grave. Your heart is full of dead men bones and things. Okay, You have the, the poison of asps on your tongue. All these things that he pulls out of the Psalms to, to indict the human race in, in, Romans, in the last uh, part of Romans 3 there, in Romans 3, 9 through 20. We are all lawbreakers. And it's interesting, too, because even today, uh, you've got people who want to say, all right, well, okay, justification by grace through faith, got it. But now you have to keep your, you have to sort of work to keep yourself in, in, in God's good graces. So if they don't add works at the beginning, they sort of add works now in the process of sanctification and how you have to stay uh, in God's good graces. And all you're going to do then is you're going to create a bunch of burned out, frustrated, uh, depressed, despairing Christians. Because who's going to be able to keep the law? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> you haven't kept the law the minute you woke up this morning. Now, the, the idea here is if you try to live by any way through the law, you're going you're to bring yourself under the curse of the law. 
I mean, if, if, you, if you say that God, you need, that you're, you're 100% dependent on God for justification, but somehow sanctification, your way of staying in grace, is a work of you with God, well, then whatever percentage you want to assign to yourself, that's where you're going to fail. Okay, so if you say sanctification is 80% God, 20% me, then you're going to fail in that 20%. If it's 99% God, 1% me, you're going to fail in that 1%. If it's 99.9% God and 0.1% me, you're going to fail in that 0.1%. Okay, whatever degree you want to assign yourself as that's what you got to do, that's where you're going to fail. That's where you're going to fail. Matthew 18 is an illustration. You know this parable. Well, I've referenced this before. Verses 23 through 20, uh, 35. It's the parable of the, uh, the, the servants who owe a great debt. It doesn't even have a name of the parable, at least not. Oh, the unforgiving servant, okay. So you've got here Matthew 18, verses 22 through 35. Like I said, you know the parable well, 23 through 35. He describes, Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven after um, someone asks Jesus, um, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times, and Peter's being, um, he's, he's, in his mind, he's being gracious there because you weren't required to forgive anybody more than three times. So he's like, look, I'll, I'll double it and I'll add one. How's that? <laughs> okay. And, and Jesus is like, no. How about 77 times? So how about 70 times seven, depending on, in other words, how about a lot? Okay. How about way more than seven? And, and, and the point is, is, that's how God forgives you. Okay, and so he tells us, look, the kingdom of heaven, this is, this is a parable that describes aspects of the kingdom of heaven. It can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you know the story, right? A talent is like a, a, a year's wage for a lab, day laborer. So 10,000 talents, you might as well be talking in his, in the, for this guy's uh, perspective like the national debt, okay? You owe $31 trillion, okay? Good luck paying that back. So he owes a lot. And since he could not pay his debt, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment be made. So he said, let, me, let me liquidate this guy and get a little bit back. Certain fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you every... No, you won't. But, okay, out of pity, right? The master has pity. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, okay, now that's a lot, okay? The master forgave it. Look, the guy said, I'll pay you back. And the master says, no, I will forgive the debt. Okay, an unpayable debt, I'm going to forgive it. Then you know how the story goes, right? Then this same fellow goes out, finds a guy who owes him a not insignificant amount of money, but certainly not 10,000 talents. A hundred denarii, it's like three months' wages or something like that. So then he seizes the man and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now the, the difference is, this guy's buddy actually could have paid him that debt. It would have taken a while, but he could have paid him the debt. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to throw you into debtor's prison. <laughs> so he puts him in debtor's prison. And, and until he should pay the debt, which is weird. It's like, how is he going to pay him the debt when he can't earn a living? But 
be that as it may. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his, all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The point is, is that you can never pay back God. You can never do enough for God. It's an unpayable debt. You cannot earn your way into salvation. And you have to have that debt forgiven. So that's point one. Point two, uh, verses 11 through 13, redemption from the curse. Now it is evident that, there, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So it is clear here, Paul is saying, it is clear here, it is evident, that's what he means there, it is evident, it is manifest, it is plain, that no one is justified, no one is declared righteous before God by the law. If you remember when we looked at chapter 2, verse 16, he says that three times. <laughs> we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So we also have believed in, in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He repeats it three times. You are not justified before God by the law. Because you cannot work enough to earn the justification. You cannot earn your righteousness. And because of its all or nothing nature, no one can keep the law perfectly. Now, now this too was known, or at least should have been known, in ancient Israel. Because what Paul does here is he cites from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now Paul must have really loved this verse because he cites it in three separate occasions. He's, well, actually, unless you believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay. The author of Hebrews cites it. Paul cites it twice. Okay, It's cited three times in the New Testament. Habakkuk 2.4. Now, you know the story of Habakkuk. We don't need to turn there. But Habakkuk is a prophet, and he is there in the last days of Judah before it's taken over by Babylon. And, and, and Habakkuk is mourning the, the, the state of his people and he's, he's praying to God for righteousness and, and God says, I'm going to do something to, in your day, Habakkuk, that you are not going to believe. And Habakkuk is like, great, we're going to have revival. He's like, no, I'm sending the Chaldeans. And it's like, okay, uh, let me, what did you say, God? So I'm sending the Chaldeans. It's like, they're worse than we are. Yes, I'm sending the Chaldeans. And, and, and the point is, it's like, look, and then I'm going to judge them too because they're wicked as well, because they're going to, they're going to overstep their bounds and so on and so forth. But guess what? It's, the righteous one is not the one who is doing anything. It's the righteous one is the one who lives his life by faith. The righteous lives his life by faith. And again, as I said, this should have been known in ancient Israel. Paul in the previous section quotes Genesis 15, 6, where uh, he says that Abraham believed and it was declared righteous. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. 
this should be, in my, for myself too, it should be memory verses, really. Song of Ascents. This is as the people are on their way to worship the Lord, ascending Mount Zion. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God kept a record of our sins, who would be able to stand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one. But then verse 4, don't forget verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may be respected and revered and honored and worshipped. If the Lord were to count iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Go back to the, the kingdom of heaven parable, right? With the Lord there is forgiveness. The Lord there is forgiveness. Isaiah 53, 6, where we, we learn that the suffering servant was sent by his stripes where he healed. He, he died for our iniquities. He was, he was put forth to die in our place so that the wrath of God could be satisfied in his servant. So no one is justified by works of the law. And if you look at verse 12, the first half, but the law is not of faith. They're, they're antithetical. <laughs> All right? They're, 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 they are incompatible. The law and faith are, are, are not... You, you cannot mix them, okay? Uh, you are either going to be righteous through faith or you're going to be righteous through law-keeping, which is a bad plan, right? Because if the Lord marks iniquities, who could stand? You are either righteous by faith or you're righteous by law-keeping. Now, again, the law gives you no power <laughs> to, to, to do it. It just says, this is what the law is, can you help me with it? No, I can't help you with it. I could just tell you what is right and what is wrong. I cannot give you any power to do it. It just shows us our sin and then condemns us when we fail. Faith, on the other hand, believes what God has promised to us and says, I will accept what you have done for me, O Lord, because I can't do it. Faith says, is the open hand that receives what God has done for you. Works or laws, I'm going to try to do it on my own. So he goes on in the last half of that verse. The one who does them shall live by them. The law, while holy and good, is uncompromising. It's not going to grade on a curve. The law, again, the law is like, I, I can't give you the power to, keep, to, to, to satisfy my, my requirements. And guess what? I, I, can't, I can't grade on a curve. I can't say, well, you did good enough. You really tried hard. You know, I mean, you almost made it. <laughs> no, the law is like, nope. Sorry, you fell short. You fell short. You know, it would be like, uh, you know, if, if you're in school, if you remember way back in those days in school, <laughs> and you were to take a test, right? And the passing grade, let's say, is 60%. Okay? And you make 59%. And you're like, I'm almost there. It's like, can you just give me one? No, I can't give you another point. Sorry. You failed. You, you failed. That's just the way it is. And he quotes here from uh, Leviticus 18.5. The one who does them shall live by them. It's like, again, it's like, look, if you're going to put yourself under the law, you better do it all. You better do it all. But faith, which is not the, uh, the law, says I can't do it. I, I, I recognize I fail. I recognize that even though I may have some outward 
show or outward evidence of obedience, I still fail. I know, I know what my heart is saying. I know, I know what's in my heart. I know, what, I, I know that I, I'm not doing this with the right motivations. And faith says, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. I have to trust in what you've done for me in Christ Jesus. So then you see there in verse 13, then Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Now, it's not like God just wipes the sin debt away. All right? He redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Okay? In other words, Christ says, I know you can't pay it, so I'll pay it for you. Again, in the parable, when the, when the king forgives the 10,000 talent debt of the servant, who's absorbing the cost of that debt? The king, right? He's saying, I'll pay it. I'll, I'll, I'll eat that debt. I'll pay that debt for you. When the, when the, in the parable of the prodigal son, when the, when the son leaves, what happens? He liquidates. I mean, he, he has to, the father has to liquidate a third of his estate in order to give his son cash. He's not giving his son a third of the sheep and a third of the goats and, and the son is walking with his sheep and his goats. No, those have to be liquidated and turned into cash so that the son can leave. And when the son comes back and he realizes that he's failed the father and he's like, look, father, just make me one of your servants. I'll pay back everything. And the father's like, no, 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 no. I'll eat that debt. I'll absorb that debt. And I'll bring you back in as my son. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ. God took his son who was perfectly sinless poured all of the weight of our sin onto his shoulders. So when Christ was on the cross, he was the most vile, ugly thing the Father ever saw. Why? Because he was loaded with the sin of the world. And then Christ paid that debt. He became a curse for us. He stood in our place. He bore the full weight of the curse of the law on himself. All of our inability to keep the law, Christ has paid for us. And then all of his ability to keep the law, he gives to us through faith. I think it's a good deal, don't you? I think it's a great deal. (laughs) It's the best deal ever. The best deal ever. All right, verse 14, the blessing of faith in Christ. So curses everyone who hang, who's hanged on a tree. And that, that too is a, a citation from Deuteronomy 21-23. Um, you know, it's often spoken of that the cross was a tree, a piece of wood. In other words, Christ was hung on a cross. He was hung on a tree and he was cursed. So verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the purpose for which Christ became a curse for us, for us was so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the nations. What's that blessing? It's a blessing that was promised way back in Genesis 12.3, where God calls Abraham and says, through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. How? 
Because Christ, <laughs> Christ comes and he brings that blessing to us by taking the curse of the law upon himself so that we can walk in righteousness, so we can be declared righteous before God. That blessing now comes to all, all the peoples of the earth, all the nations, all the Gentiles. The, the, the blessings of Abraham were never only for his natural offspring but for all people. And this is important for the understanding of the flow of redemptive history, is that this promise was given to Abraham. His family would then become, would grow into a nation, which would then be that vehicle through which Christ comes into the world. And we're going to talk about the law and the promise in, in, in verses to come. So I'll save that for then. But again, this is, this is all so that the blessings of of God might come to all the nations through Christ Jesus. And becoming Abraham's children and heirs of his covenant promises, that was always through faith in the person and work of Christ as well, never by works of the law. You don't earn your way into God's family. You can't work your way into God's family. You can't be good enough to be in God's family. He adopts you by faith. He brings you into his family. You are now a, a son or a daughter of Abraham by faith. And now you are a recipient of all the blessings. You are an heir of all the blessings. We are co-heirs with Christ, Paul will say in Romans 8. And moreover, we receive the Holy Spirit. Look at the rest of verse 14. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. He talks about this earlier, if you remember back in verses, uh, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's, with, it's through faith. The Spirit is given to you through faith. That deposit is given to you. That, that earnest money has been paid. The Spirit is that down payment in your life. He dwells within you and He is the guarantee. You become sealed. And not in the sense of sealed like how a letter is sealed. The contents are sealed by a wax seal that has the imprintation of the, of the, uh, the king or whoever uh, writes the letter. You are sealed by God. And the seal is the Holy Spirit. He preserves you. He makes sure that you will gain the inheritance that has been promised to you. The Holy Spirit will preserve you through all the trials of life. And just a few words in conclusion here. Um, the law was not... Let me rephrase that. To Adam, the law was a way to earn that higher life. Had Adam obeyed, he would, have, he would have entered into paradise. But ever since the fall, that avenue has been shut. You cannot earn righteousness anymore through the law because not only are we born with Adam's guilt, we commit actual sins that then add to our account. So the law then was given, in the sense to Israel, as a way to expose our sinfulness and bring us under the curse of God's wrath. But then through Christ and his death on the cross... He became a curse for us and redeems us from the curse of the law. Now, what this passage certainly does clearly is it exposes the problem that all human beings face, right? Born into this world. We are, we are as R.C. Sproul likes to say, radically corrupt. He doesn't like total depravity. Um, and I don't like the phrase total depravity because it has a 
It's often misunderstood. But we are radically corrupt. We are corrupt to the core. Okay? We are born into this world corrupt to the core. And there's no amount of law keeping that will save us. As I said, that avenue has been shut to us ever since the fall. There's, I mean, you, you already come in with, with a debt. <laughs> you come into this world with debt. And then you just incur more and more debt as you live. And that's the problem we're in. And that's the problem Paul is trying to, to impress upon his readers in Galatia. It's like, look, the law just shows you how far you've fallen. <laughs> right? You know, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we cannot attain that glory. There's no way to attain that glory. We have fallen short. You need faith. You need to be justified by faith. Now, there are couple of distortions. I don't know. Do I have distortions on your hand out there? Okay. There are some distortions of this doctrine. You may have heard of these. You may not have heard of these. Um, there are a couple, and, and when I say they're new, in the theological world, new can go back like a couple hundred years, okay? Uh, but, but when I say new, we're probably talking the last 20 or so years. There's been a couple of, of movements uh, called one is called the New Perspective on Paul. Has anybody heard of that? Okay. And the other one is called Federal Vision. Has anybody heard of that one? All right. These are two movements that, in, end, in the end, what they do is they end up distorting justification by faith alone. Okay. Um, the RCOS has spoken out against this, both of them. Uh, every reformed, uh, confessionally reformed denomination... PCA, OPC, URCNA, they have all written papers that denounce new perspective on Paul and federal vision. But they are theological movements that have emerged in the last 20, 30 years or so, and they challenge the traditional view of Paul's teaching on justification. Uh, the new perspective, as the name might indicate, gives you a new perspective, <laughs> uh, suggests that Paul was not arguing about legalism. Okay, when he says works of the law, he is, does not mean legalism. He's referring to, to Jewish boundary markers, okay? In other words, it's like, the law is fine. It's just that you were, the Jews, what they were doing is they were, they were uh, keeping the Gentiles at bay because they wouldn't follow the certain boundary markers of circumcision and dietary laws. But works of the law are fine. So, so he's not arguing against legalism per se, so then once you're in, then you sort of cooperate with God and you kind of earn your, your justification. You, you justify yourself. Same thing with federal vision. It, it distorts this, this idea of, of justification by faith alone and says that you are, um, you're not justified by faith. You're justified by faithfulness. Okay? And that, that's in a sense, you know, how, how well are you keeping the law? And when, and when you appear before God at the end of the day, he's going to look at your works and see whether you should go. It sounds very Roman Catholic when you think about that. Um, but these are distortions. These are distortions. And there's always going to be people that are going to distort justification by faith alone. It blurs that distinction between the law and the gospel, or between the law and faith. Paul says here, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. So I think there's no passage here that so more clearly highlights this law-gospel distinction 
than Galatians 3, 10 verses, uh, verses 10 through 14. What we could not do by the law, Christ has done for us. And that's why I love Romans 8, verses 3 through 4 so much in this. Um, where he says there, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. I love that. All right, Because in our weakened flesh we cannot keep the law, so God has done it for us. He has done what we could not do uh, weakened by the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So as a result we are no longer under the curse but enjoy the blessings of faith in Christ. And by faith in him we receive the Holy Spirit and we become children of Abraham and we inherit the promise of salvation. So then just a little bit of gospel encouragement here. Let us therefore then put our faith in Christ. Okay, Trust in his finished work. Works of the law, again, remember, they, they, they do not earn you anything. We're going to talk about the law later in Galatians and that's, and that's what we call the third use of the law as a guide for Christian living. And by that, then, that's what we do as a response to the fact that we've been saved. Paul will get to that in, verse, in chapters 5 and 6. But here, as far as justification is concerned, the law cannot do it. You have to trust in the finished work of Christ, knowing that in him we have the ultimate blessing, eternal life. <clears throat> 